10 to 15 pounds. Whether that is heavy or not is a matter of perspective and position. I just want to bug you with that until we come around to it at the end of the sermon. So I'm going to stick that in your mind, and hopefully it will bother you for the next two hours or so. Just kidding, it won't be that long. But we are taking a fairly decent chunk of scripture this morning. Uh, This is a little different going through historical narratives like 1 Samuel, because the action kind of moves along pretty quickly. Um, And so it's a little different. We were just studying the book of James before this, and you can take one prescriptive idea from the book of James, like be quick to, to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, and you can do a whole sermon on that. Whereas in some of the historical narratives, you have a lot of things that are descriptive, but not always prescriptive. So it says a lot of things that happened, and then it's up to us to, uh, with the rest of the whole council of scripture, understand what that means and what that means for us today. But there's fascinating aspects of this story, and this, this chunk all kind of goes together, so we decided to, to, to bite off those verses. Um, what I wanted to uh, talk about and jump in, to get you up to speed, if you weren't here last week, what has happened with uh, Israel is that they have... Um, They have been in a cycle of disobeying God and God delivering them over to another people and them repenting and coming back to God and then disobeying again. And they've been in this cycle for a very, very long time. And this last cycle, they have been against the Philistines. Uh, They are... The Philistines seems, seem to have attacked them, and they went out to battle, and they lost. And they were trying to figure out why. Well, we know why, because we have Scripture telling us it was because of unrepentant sin. Their religious system was a mess. Right? They had their, their high priest, who was apparently not a very good disciplinarian as a father, and his two sons, who were... Uh, abusing their office of priest in all sorts of awful ways. And Israel wasn't dealing with it. And so they lost the battle. Well, they had this great idea. Well, let's take the Ark of the Covenant, the thing that God had told them uh, to make, to put um, basically a, a place for the presence of God in their tabernacle. And It had been used a number of times under God's instruction. But they thought, without God's instruction, let's take that as kind of a lucky charm and we'll go out to battle with the Philistines and then we'll win, of course, because we have this ark. Well, it didn't work that way. Uh, They were soundly defeated. And what's more, the ark was taken by the Philistines. And that's kind of where we pick up the story right now. So... Jumping into chapter 5, verse 1, we read, When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. 
So the really fancy word for what the Philistines were doing is called syncretism. Right? It's merging different religious aspects or cultural aspects together. And so in the Philistines' mind, if one god is good, two is even better. Right? We'll, just, we'll take this Ark of the Covenant and we'll add it to our gods that we worship and we'll be that much better. What they, what they miss, of course, is that there is only one god. There is no god and there is only God. And we'll say that we'll see that a number of times throughout First and Second Samuel as we study it, um, that, that that point gets missed often. And I think we need to understand that as well, that we can't have a God and. And I think in our, in our culture, in our society, it's very easy to try to add some things to God, some other little gods little g, like God and money, and then I'll be fine. Right? God and a good job, and then I'll be fine. God and my family, and then I'll be fine. Again, those are all fine things, but not if we worship them in addition to God. So the Philistines, uh, and a number of times in, in this passage in particular, will find that the Philistines encounter some event, and they're trying to figure it out. They're trying to figure out, is this a coincidence? What do I make of it? Right? And so when, when they put the Ark of the Covenant in the house of Dagon, now again, keep in mind, they just defeated Israel quite soundly. So in their minds, like the Ark of the Covenant isn't necessarily a bigger God than Dagon. So they, they add it to this house of Dagon, but then imagine their surprise in the morning when Dagon is face forward on the ground before the ark. Now, yes, we, we know what happens in the story and we're reading this, but you can imagine, right, what their reaction might have been. Ah, Larry probably bumped it when they were putting the ark in last night, right? Or, or something. Like, our, our mind doesn't automatically always go to the supernatural as an explanation for what's happening, so they're trying to figure this out. So they look at this, they're like, oh, well, that's probably not good. They set Dagon back up again. Which, again, you might be worshiping a false god if he requires your help to stand. Just saying. But they're, they're going to do it again. right? So they set him back up again. Life is back to normal, except in verse 4 it says, But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. This day was a long time ago, but... Uh, it happened again, only this time it was even worse. So this seems to be less of a coincidence, right? Maybe not just an accident from their point of view. And the imagery is pretty clear. The Dagon is again powerless, impotent in the presence of God or, or even just the ark. 
Dagon is prostrate before the Lord. So he is not equal to. And the head, of course, is the seat of power. Think head coach, head of state, right? His head's cut off. And his hands, the, the things, if there was any help to be offered by Dagon, he can't help anymore because he is handless. The hand of God is going to be prominent throughout this passage. But Dagon can do nothing. He's powerless. And let me be clear. God doesn't like competition. And it is not, it is not because he is insecure. He doesn't like competition because it's bad for us. Unfortunately, the Philistines still miss this point. Uh, what they do is they, they actually just add another superstitious ritual. They're like, well, this is a weird thing. Now I guess we shouldn't step on the threshold anymore. So that, that should kind of solve things. No, the proper response would be to fall down prostrate before God. That's the proper response, but it'll take a while for them to get there, like forever, unfortunately. Uh, verse 6, the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for, this, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. The wording is pretty poignant. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. While their god, Dagon, was handless. Now, we don't have a lot of details about what these tumors were, or even where they were. There are a couple theories. Uh, one, that it might be something like the bubonic plague, like some painful inflammation of the lymph nodes, um, or something even like hemorrhoids or blisters in other areas related to fertility if you get my meaning, since Dagon was either either or both the god of grain and fertility. Right? So, that, so potentially, again, I don't want to read too much into it because I don't know for sure, um, but potentially very, very pointed attacks at what Dagon was supposed to be in charge of. Right? Um, unfortunately, they're still not releasing interest in Dagon. Note how they call Dagon our God. Like, this is our God. They're not, about to, they're not about to switch allegiance. And again, from their perspective, they beat Israel. Right? So, so I can understand where they're coming from, um, but they're not understanding why God is doing all of this. But they did at least recognize that the God of Israel might have a hand in all of this. right? But their thinking was, Dagon and, and the God of Israel are just not compatible. right? We, we tried living together, it just didn't work. Um, so the Israelite God has to go. And in verse 8, they sent and gathered all of the lords of the Philistines and said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And the lords answered, let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. 
But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic, and he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. All right, so the solution that they came up with was, we'll move the ark to the next town. Interesting thing, and I didn't notice this until yesterday, but you might have heard of the city of Gath before because there was a fairly famous giant from there named Goliath. And so what I'm wondering in my mind, again, I don't want to read too much into it, but what I'm wondering is if in these Philistine cities and these Philistine lords, there were some power plays, right? Where, oh, Ashdod couldn't handle it, but you know what? The guys from Gath, we're big and strong. We can, we can handle it. We'll add this Israelite God to our arsenal, and we'll be that much more powerful. Maybe get a leg up on some of these other lords as well. It's possible, right? Maybe they thought they could handle it. Um, I think it's also interesting that the affliction of the tumor seemed only to affect men. Again, uh, possibly lending credence to the idea that, that it was a specific type of painful tumor. Um, but moving on, in verse 10, they sent the ark. Uh, oops, sorry. Yeah, yeah, so they sent it to Gath. Tumors break out in Gath also. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they've brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. So it was not very welcome at that city. And a couple of uh, colloquial phrases come to mind. Uh, one of them is, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. Or maybe a more relevant one would be, insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. I think that might be a little more um, appropriate for what they're doing. As we continue reading... It says, they, they sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. The hand of God does seem incredibly heavy for those who are fighting against him. And again, even if this is uh, somewhat hyperbolic or exaggerated, many, if not all of the men, were either dead or in pain. So they want it gone. At least the people do. The lords, maybe, they don't seem to be afflicted with this as we read through the story. Um, and unfortunately, it's that's one of those leadership principles that, uh, that we see in a negative sense many times, is that it doesn't become as important unless the leaders are affected. But the people want it gone. Not just to the next city. They've kind of cycled through the cities of the Philistines, but they, they are suggesting, let's send it back to Israel. This is doing us no good. Because the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months, okay, cycling through different cities for seven months, causing havoc and destruction. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? 
Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. They said, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. Some lessons take way too long to learn. Seven months seems like a really long time uh, to deal with death and tumors. The Philistines had sought advice from their lords, the political leaders. Now they're seeking advice from the religious leaders because that advice didn't work out so well that they had gotten before. And again, I'm wondering if there was a certain machismo among the Philistine leaders that, well, we can handle it. And again... Uh, delusional leadership has a really devastating effect on those being led. We need to remember that when we're, when we're dealing with our own squad, our own company, our own friend group, our own family. But they're done. right? They're looking out at religious leaders and they, they recognize that they have to send it back with something. Right, from their frame of reference, the God of Israel is very upset with them. They have done something wrong, probably like taking the ark. And they need, they need to do some kind of offering. They need to send it back with something valuable. And they call it a guilt offering. And this is so fascinating when we encounter stories like this in scripture where, where those who don't know or don't acknowledge Yahweh or the God of Israel, when they end up being sometimes more theologically astute than the Israelites. So even the Philistines understand the necessity of, of a guilt offering for what they have done to offend God. And yet Israel seems to go in this pattern over and over again of forgetting that. Now it is a bold claim that the Philistines make that, well, we just do this, we give that God a guilt offering and then we'll be healed and we'll figure out why all of this is happening. Well, again, we know why all of this is happening It happened because Israel had unrepentant sin. That's why it's happening. It really doesn't have a ton to do with the Philistines. It's about God's relationship with Israel and how they've ignored sin in their midst for so long. So they come up with a plan. And here's their plan. They said, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice. According to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and on, on, on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravaged the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. The plan involves sacrifice, right? They're on the right track with this, at least. Um, the Philistines understand that God needs a sacrifice to atone for sin. That's in fact why Jesus came to earth to live, 
to die to be resurrected because God needs a sacrifice. Our sin costs something. And God was gracious enough to provide that offering for us, but it still comes at great cost. And so the Philistines, in in tracking at least somewhat with this, understand that there's a costly sacrifice, and they decide to sacrifice their riches through golden tumors and mice. <laughs> like, I was tracking with the tumors, but where did the mice come from, right? Well, there's a, there's a couple of different options. Um, one is that this was indeed something like the bubonic plague, there's some language uh, things that might that might hint to that, and we think we know now, or at least from what I understand, the bubonic plague in the Middle Ages was was carried by like fleas on mice and rats. And so, did this did this all happen because of that? You know, under God's authority and under His heavy hand, um, quite quite possibly, or I think the other possible option is that, as we've talked about before, Dagon is sometimes seen to have been maybe like a fertility god or or god of harvest grain. So if we're dealing with both of those things, with tiny little mice destroying your country um, with your grain harvest that Dagon was supposed to be protecting, and then you know tumors dealing with fertility, it could be just kind of a two-pronged, two-pronged approach to that. So one or the other, the point is, there were mice, there were tumors, and the Philistines are recognizing that these are, the, these are the things caused by God. And in making these statues of gold or these images of gold, they're acknowledging, we understand this is from you and, and we don't want any part of it anymore. So here's our sacrifice. Please leave us alone. <laughs> um, what I think is also interesting, uh, especially in these verses right here, is that the, the word for heavy and the word for glory are essentially the same, kavod or kabod. And you might remember last week when uh, one, of the, one of the priest's wives named their son Ichabod because the glory had left Israel. Kabod, glory. But then also heavy. And so there's this there's this idea where, where the heavy hand of God is also glorifying to him. Not from the Philistines' perspective, obviously, because um, they're not enjoying life very much. But, um, but this, this sense of justice and, and of God being glorified through dealing with sin. As we continue on, the Philistines uh, continue their conversation and they say, why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them. The language is pretty remarkable because the Philistines... Uh, we had encountered this before in previous chapters where they had heard about what, what God had done in Egypt, delivering Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And what's also interesting, they probably heard that 
as Israel was leaving Egypt, the Egyptian families, like basically all of the households, gave them a bunch of stuff. Like on a national level, there was a, they gave a lot to Israel. You know, gold, jewelry, valuable things as they were leaving. Um, and again, that was kind of God's provision for, for Israel. Um, but I'm guessing that the Philistines knew that as well and said, look, it can cost us a lot now or it can cost us more later. So let's do now. We'll do the golden, we'll do the golden tumors and the golden mice and let's get this away from us as soon as we can. So they come up with this plan, right? We're going to take two milk cows with calves. We're going to take the calves away from them. We're going to yoke them to a, a cart. And we're going to send this thing away. The plan continues in their description in verse 8. It says, and take the, the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put in a box at its side the figures of gold, which you were returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. So again, they're still not entirely sure, but they come up with a plan, kind of a surefire way to prove that it, that it would be God, right? Because they have these cows who would have no reason to walk away from their calves because they're good mama cows. And they have no reason to really pull a cart well, I imagine, because they've never been hooked up to a cart. That's not what the milk cows were for. And, and we'll, we'll send it on its way. And if it goes to, the, to Israel, then it was meant to be, and, and we know that it was the God of Israel that did all this stuff to us. If not, well, I don't know what they would have done if, uh, if the cows hadn't gone. So let's see what happens. Spoiler alert. Uh, the men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. Now this offering is using available resources, although it's interesting. Remember I was talking about prescriptive and descriptive? Um, this is describing what they did there's some question as to whether it was really the right thing. Because what God has required of Israel is typically male cows that are unblemished as, as a sacrifice or male animals. And so here we have milk cows with calves. Um, who knows? Right? They were used for kind of a holy purpose. Um, so maybe that was... That was just in gratitude to the cows bringing them and not using that, you know, charging extra for holy milk from those cows from then on. I don't know. But 
But they, they did continue to offer sacrifices as well. It says, And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them up on the, upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings. Okay? So the offerings continued, um, hopefully in the right vein, according to, to God's desires. Uh, offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, and that they weren't going to get their cart back, they returned that day to Ekron. So, again, sacrifices continued. Um, I, I'm not 100% sure what the proper responses to those golden tumors and golden mice was supposed to be. Um, they're just kind of there in, in another box. And so all is right with the world, right? The ark returned. Everything is right. And Israel lived happily ever after. Or did they? Um, these are the golden tumors um, that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords. Both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. Knew there had to be a catch, right? He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. Now, I'm not entirely sure what looked upon the ark meant. There are other translations that say looked in. Um, and that, that might be be more of the issue that they were curious, um, hey, did the Philistines stick some more golden tumors or golden mice in there, or just curiosity, I want to see what's in there, possibly, or maybe at some level they were, they were treating the ark um, with not as much reverence as they should be. Regardless, they did something wrong, and 70 of them died. And so the people of Beth Shemesh, what should have been this, this grand homecoming and this celebration and time of sacrifice and rejoicing is now turned darker because of the sin of some men. And they ask a very interesting question, rhetorical question, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? Point being, no one. No one should or can stand before a holy God. That's not our place. Our place is to bow. They showed it very appropriately with Dagon. Dagon's place was not to stand before a holy God either. He was to bow because it was fake. Right? The Israelites couldn't stand before God. That's why they lost in battle in their arrogance and unwillingness to deal with sin 
they were laid low. And same with us. Our job is not to stand. Our job is to bow in submission to God. And so the, the men of, and, and the people of Beth Shemesh are looking for somebody else to take this. Right? Our losses have been too great. We lost 70 of our men. Let's ship this on somewhere else. Right? They're pulling something out of the Philistine playbook to some degree. Um, Beth Shemesh was apparently right on the border with the Philistines, though. So there may have been some other, some other reasons besides just the devastation from, from their town. Um, Kiriath-Jerim was, was up high. It actually seems like it had been used for some religious and cultic purposes before Israel got in there. Um, but regardless, the ark, is, the ark is back, and they're calling for some help to get it further in to uh, Israel's land. And so as we finish up this passage, we read the last couple of verses. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So again, all is not well in Israel. 20 years, 20 years were there lamenting after the Lord. So yeah, we end on a little bit of a downer. Um, but the big question, I think, for Israel is, as there is with any apology, are you, are you sorry for what you've done? Or are you sorry that there were consequences? We'll find out next week what the big elephant in the room is with Israel. But, but as we conclude this passage, I want us to go back to the beginning. God's hand is strong and heavy. And there's a number of different ways that we can learn. Uh, we can learn from our successes. We can learn from our failures. We can learn from other people's successes. And we can learn from other people's failures. And I don't, I don't want to sit in such judgment of, of Israel or the Philistines. That's not my point here today. Maybe I would have done the same. But we have their example and their failures to learn from. And so what I will do is encourage all of us to not make the same mistakes based on what we know now. So yes, God's hand is heavy. And there are some really devastating things that can be associated with that if we fight him. But there are some incredibly positive things that we can see as well. Let's go back to that 10 to 15 pounds. That's about the weight of an average human arm. So, my friend Justin does some MMA fighting. If I were, if I were fighting Justin, it would go badly for me. His 10 to 15 pounds would feel a lot heavier than that. 
But if my perspective or my position was changed and Justin was fighting for me, that's a whole different realm, isn't it? And his 10 to 15 pounds would be protecting me instead, which I know he would do because he's that kind of guy. You think about, we've got a lot of military around here. Think about a bulletproof vest, right? Maybe about that same weight, depending on how many plates there are. Heavy, I would imagine, if you're a toothpick like me, constricting, like burdensome, right? Except the fact that it can save your life. So with that perspective, all of a sudden, it doesn't seem as heavy, right? The last example... I brought this from home. This is my wife's. 10 to 15 pounds, weighted blanket. For a long time, I blamed her for stealing covers, but really it's my fault because I gave this to her as a gift. And you have this big weight on one side of the bed, and it takes the covers, and I can't win. I'm fighting it, but I can't win. And so I wake up, and I'm half covered. But from her perspective... Enveloping her. It's, yes, it's a heavy weight, but it's peace and comfort for her. And so, my point in, in all of this, as we look at what Israel and the Philistines did, right, if we fight against God, His hand is going to be heavy against us. And we will lose because He is holy and we're not. His hand is heavy upon us like a loving father so that we'll repent and turn to him. If we embrace God, if we accept the sacrifice that God made for us through the death of his son, then that that heavy hand is the same hand that Jesus said this. He said, My Father who has given them to me, talking about his disciples and followers, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. It's the same hand. It can be against you, it can be for you. It requires belief in Jesus Christ. Christ.